The Energy Gang is brought to you by Rena Solar America, a tier one solar module and LED lighting manufacturer with 10 years of experience producing clean energy technologies. Rena Solar is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record as a partner with installers and project developers looking to make their operations more cost efficient. You can see all their products online at renasola.us or talk to a local rep at 415-852-7421. And thanks to Renasola for the support. For the week of August 5th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. Stephen Lacey here, your MC, a co-host of this show and a senior editor at Green Tech Media. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, after two years of anticipation, the Obama administration's carbon regulations have been finalized. They're being hailed as bold, criticized as weak, and attacked as a danger to our grid and our wallets. We'll parse through it all. Then the UK has shut down its big efficiency program called the Green Deal due to rising costs and poor management. We'll look at why. And finally, we're talking about Bill Gates. He has a new manifesto on energy investing, and it's more balanced than his previous pieces. We'll discuss the shift in tone. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me as usual. They are my co-hosts in D.C. and NYC, respectively. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions, and she's a clean power plan wonk. So this, this week, is this week like a dream for you or a nightmare for you, Catherine? You do get to say your favorite phrase, 111D, a lot today. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Uh, let's just say I'll be really glad to go on vacation. Next week, it's probably needed. <laughs> Have you been, um, you know, reading this, reading the rule, nighttime reading? Yes, I have been reading it, the, uh, just as all of us have here in do, town. Do, so. do you and your husband have, like, your own copies on either side of the bed? <laughs> that's, that's horrible. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He's in New York City. Um, Jigger, are you as excited about the clean power plan as, as we all are? <laughs> you, you've been excited about something the last few weeks we've opened the show. Does this yeah. week stack up with the last few? Well, I, I do love the clean power plan, but I think I've been more excited about the fact that, uh, you know, my wife is uh, pregnant, so we're expecting our first in October. So yeah, so happy for you guys. You Thanks. just made the announcement publicly. So, so is the child's first phrase going to be power purchase agreement or cash flow available <laughs> for distribution? <laughs> yeah, yield co. Yield yeah, that's co. right. <laughs> that's an easier one. <laughs> Well, let's uh, introduce our guest this week, Michael Grunewald, a journalist who extensively covers energy policy and politics. He's a, um, a senior staff writer for Politico. He's worked for the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and most recently for Time Magazine. And he's author of the 2012 book, The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. Michael, welcome. Busy week for you as well, I presume. Yeah, thanks for having me. And congrats, Jigger. That's awesome. <laughs> thanks. So this Monday, the Obama administration released its final rule for regulating carbon emissions from existing power plants developed by the Environmental Protection Agency. The goal is slightly more ambitious than the initial proposal, but also provides more flexibility in terms of timing. The target, drop electric sector carbon emissions by 32% below 2005 levels by the year 2030. Now, before we start, I want to hear a quick piece of Obama's speech. Um, this is like this clip I'm going to play is about halfway through and the president goes off script, and it's one of the strongest moments. So here it goes. The kinds of criticisms that you're going to hear are simply 
excuses for an action. They're not even good business sense. They underestimate American business and American ingenuity. In 1970, when Republican President Richard Nixon decided to do something about the smog that was choking our cities, they warned that the new pollution standards would decimate the auto industry. It didn't happen. Catalytic converters worked. Taking the lead out of gasoline worked. Our air got cleaner. In 1990, when Republican President George H.W. Bush decided to do something about acid rain, said the bills would go up, our lights would go off, businesses would suffer a quiet death, it didn't happen. We cut acid rain dramatically, and it cost much less than anybody expected because businesses, once incentivized, were able to figure it out. When we restricted lead, leaded fuel in our cars, cancer-causing chemicals in plastics, it didn't end the oil industry, it didn't end the plastics industry. American chemists came up with better substitutes. The fuel standards we put in place a couple of years ago didn't cripple automakers. The American auto industry retooled. Today, our automakers are selling the best cars in the world at a faster pace than they have in almost a decade. They've got more hybrids and more plug-ins and more high-fuel-efficient high cars, giving consumers more choice than ever before and saving families at the pump. We can figure this stuff out as long as we're not lazy about it. So, so there we have the president describing why the critics are wrong about the plan's cost. And before we get into what those criticisms are on, on either side, Catherine, I'd like you to set us up with some background, particularly for our international listeners who might not be following the politics of this closely. Like, where does this fit in with the pre- president's entire climate agenda and, and how did we get here? Yeah, so it's interesting because I think um, back in 2009, and a lot of people have battle scars from that era, when Waxman Markey passed a cap-and-trade bill out of the House of Representatives, it failed in the Senate um, in part because the president was pushing so hard for the Affordable Care Act, and there was really no way to take up those two huge battles at once. So that was one of the reasons that, you know, that that, that plan did not get through. And at the time, everybody thought, well, the president must not really care that much about climate. And, um, you know, if he's just all in on the Affordable Care Act, then what does he care? Well, he has kept on. This is actually a legacy issue for him, and you can hear in that speech how much it means to him. So in 2014, the Supreme Court upheld the findings that EPA should regulate greenhouse gases. Last summer, a draft rule was promulgated, and then the final rule just came out. Um, In addition to the final rule, there are two proposals we can talk about as well that are going to be given um, three months to to comment on. One is the federal implementation plan, and the other is the clean energy incentive program. So there are two extra pieces. But this is something that really is a legacy item for him. You could tell in that speech that he's really, really committed. And it's something they've been working very, very diligently to get done. And I think in a thoughtful way. Yeah. And it really is a landmark rule simply because we've never had a national policy like this for reducing carbon emissions. However, as you've written, Michael, it's not terribly ambitious when you look at Um, what it does to economy-wide emissions, and sort of where we are already with emissions dropping and renewables growing. And and you pointed out in your recent piece, um, the EPA wrote uh, midway through the, the report, the trends for all types of generation will remain generally consistent with what their trends would be in the absence of this rule. So you remain skeptical, correct? Well, I do. I think, uh, you know, partly, as you mentioned, because so much is already being done. Um, and over the last decade, 
We've already seen uh, the power sector's emissions decline 15%. Um, the idea that now it's got to go 30% uh, by 2030, it means that it's essentially we'll be slowing our rate of decarbonization. Um, uh, some of the, the numbers for coal uh, which is essentially what he's talking about when he's saying that he had trouble breathing when he was running around L.A. Um, again, uh, it originally in the dr the draft was almost completely toothless, and they said that you know when we're when we're done with this, coal will still be 31 percent of uh, of our electricity mix, would be which would be a climate disaster if in 2030 um, we're still using you know a third of our power from from coal. Uh, now it's 27%, but still uh, not a huge change. And as they said in the rule itself, not a change in the uh, in the current trends. Well, but isn't this really just a reflection of America's inability to do big things? I mean, I think that, you know, when you think about the clean power plan and what it's intended to do, it's intended to nudge, right, using in this way, in this case, a little bit harder than a nudge, but to force the 50 states to actually think clearly about what their clean power plan will be um, and, you know, actually justify things. I mean, what's been going on in the public service commissions at the state level for the last four or five years is that coal has been losing and losing big time in almost every single state. Every time the coal industry says, we want you to subsidize our power plant so we can stay open, like First Energy is doing in Ohio, people are scratching their heads and saying, wait, I thought we were free market people. Why aren't we doing more stuff that pays for itself. I just think the clean power plan is is forcing people to have a conversation that they just, you know, weren't going to have if it wasn't for EPA, you know, putting this on top of them. You're right that the actual emissions reductions are going to come because we're deploying, you know, wind and solar at twice the scale that the clean power plan actually calls for. We're deploying energy efficiency at twice the scale that the clean power plan is actually calling for. And we're shutting down coal plants faster than anyone can count because of Bloomberg's money in the Sierra Club. We're, we're mostly agreeing, right, Jigger? I mean, uh, I guess the, the question is whether you know, these conversations are really happening. I guess part of the question is whether it's really the, uh, the clean power plan that's, that, that's driving this. I mentioned in that first piece I wrote, which I uh, got a lot of pushback, but I said that really this is this isn't everybody's describing this as, you know, the strongest step ever taken to combat climate change. I think it's the fourth strongest step just taken by Obama. Um, behind the stimulus, which poured $90 billion into clean energy, behind the much stronger fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks, and behind the mercury rules that are really helping to, to shut down coal plants in a way that uh, the clean power plan, at least you know, as written, doesn't necessarily provide that much of a hammer. Yeah, but I feel like this is um, this provides a baseline. So this says, all right, we're going to regulate what we have, what the Supreme Court has upheld us to regulate. These are binding. We they are standards. All power plants are subject to the same standards, um, regardless of the location. We're going to regulate coal, natural gas, any fossil, and then you guys can figure out how how you're going to do that, whether it's plant by plant or state by state or region by region. And it gives a lot of flexibility. So yes, there's not a lot of words about here's all the great renewables you can do, but it sets it up so that you you have a binding, legally binding commitment. And it also gives certainty to the investor community that says, all right, maybe I won't go into this new 
coal technology that might sound interesting because guess what? That's not where the market is. And so it really does set up while having a legal standard also sets up huge flexibility for market mechanisms. Right. So so let me so Michael, let me ask you the question a different way, right? Is I mean like yesterday NPR's marketplace covered this program, which they never cover solar and wind. I mean CNBC covered it, even though Sun Edison is buying more stuff than Sandy Wilde did during the heyday of Citibank. Um, CNBC never covers the solar and wind industry, and now they're covering it, right? I mean, isn't part of this actually bringing the conversation into all the nooks and crannies that aren't having the conversation now so they can recognize how damn cost-effective all of our stuff is? Well, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, you know, I wrote a book in 2012. I was like banging my spoon on my high chair saying, hey, look at all this stuff that's happening. Uh, you know, people ought to pay attention where at the time, you know, solar has increased tenfold. Now it's up 20fold. You know, wind has doubled. Now it's tripled. Um, you know, I think it's a really big deal. You've got all these coal plants shutting down left and right. Um, I guess if this is calling attention to that, that's a that's a good thing. Um but the question is whether it's driving that. Um, the one, the one point I will make, say that I made in my point to, in my piece today is that uh, you know the draft, which I thought was completely toothless and almost laughable, um, this has definitely improved it. And uh, and what they are doing now, while the draft essentially said, you know, okay, we're going to try to cut emissions thirty percent. And the essentially the coal-rich states, um, since you're so dependent on coal, um, we're not really going to ask you to do very much, um, which was really ridiculous. Uh, and of course, those states, can, Kentucky and West Virginia and Indiana, they went berserk anyway, and we're still vowing to, you know, this is this is war on us, this is war on coal, this is uh, this will not stand. Um, the the revised the final rule actually reverses that and says, well, you know, we might as well go hunting where the ducks are. And since these goals are just non-binding, but the state targets actually do have some have some kick, um, the fact that states like Montana and Indiana and Kentucky and West Virginia and North Dakota are going to be hit much harder by the final rule than they were by the draft, I think that's something you can point to and say, okay, this is actually going to do something. This is going to force some decisions at the state level. Is this vulnerable at all legally? No, well, it, but it's vulnerable in terms of the new president, right? I mean, what happens, remember what happened under Clinton and then Bush, right? I mean, um, you know, Clinton had lawsuits against all these major utility companies, which Bush then, you know, summarily dismissed when he came into office. And the same thing could happen here where the rule will stay in place, but the state implementation plans are going to be, you know, states could submit something way weaker if, you know, a president comes into office that wants weak implementation plans. Right. But you've got the coal companies that are now gearing up uh, with lawsuits and uh, many of them revolve around uh, or at least one major one revolves around uh, this so-called drafting error when they when Congress signed the Clean Air Act. Um, one would give more explicit permission to regulate CO2 emissions. One does one uh, draft does not. And I think that could be an issue. Is that sort of the legal loophole we should be looking at? Or what are the legal challenges, Michael, that um, are most prominent here and, and represent the biggest threat? I think as Jigger said, it's the sort of the politics will drive the law. Um, you know, so the next president will not only uh, you know decide whether to implement this in good faith. Faith, uh, he or she will decide. You know, on one of the next round of Supreme Court justices, which will you know essentially decide whether 
uh, a regulation like this can stand. Um, and one thing that really matters is, uh, you know, the, this needs to start now, right? I mean, climate change is a planetary emergency. Um, we're doing a lot. Uh, the idea is that we need to do a lot more and we need to do it a lot faster. Um, one of the really disappointing things about the final rule is that uh, it it really pushes, it, it delays implementation from it was originally supposed to start in 2020. Now it gets pushed back to 2022. Um, that doesn't include what, you know, what kind of legal delays there may be. And I found a footnote that uh, where the EPA pointed out and, you know, in their legal defense saying like, no, this isn't stringent at all. They said, in fact, states don't really need to do anything in uh, 2022 or 2023. Uh, they could well, push all of their action back to 2024, nine years of doing nothing and still comply. So I think that's a real concern. But the other side of this, Michael, is that, you know, I think the Clean Energy Incentive Program, which is part of the Clean Energy Plan, which gives people credit for doing stuff, um, you know, in 2020, um, you know, I think will actually, you know, play a big role. And when you look at, you know, in Georgia and North Carolina, the solar industry is one of the top um, new employers in the state right now. Um, and you're starting to see a real ramp up in Alabama and in Mississippi and other places and solar in particular, but also in wind. I mean, there's over 9,000 megawatts of wind actively um, under construction. And NREL just came out with a report, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, that said that they actually think that the new wind turbines are so advanced that you can actually get to 65% capacity factors, which is mind-blowing. It, it takes a lot of the variability out of wind. And so my sense is this clean energy incentive program that's been tucked into the final rule is going to force a lot of these states to choose economic development over politics. Well, and they, well, need, it gives and they them needed an it. The, I mean, we have the 17% voluntary target by 2020, so we need to speed up some of these markets that are not yet developed, and it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, and I think just in the same way that the Affordable Care Act was implemented in such a way that people don't want to roll it back, so many people have taken advantage of it, it's going to be like this too. Once you've made it an investment in this infrastructure in states, they're not going to want to roll it back. Well, that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, Catherine, and, and have you jump in on Jigger, and that is, does this give proponents of the ITC and the PTC more firepower? Because if you are opening up new state markets where you might need a bigger set of incentives, those federal tax credits will be important for stimulating demand. And I, you think we'll see, um, you know, Republicans and folks who have not been on board pushing for this because they need it? I don't think you will because no. they're not putting themselves in a position of saying that this is a good thing. Because they probably think, won't even implement plans in the first place. Yeah, I think instead you're going to see much more state action. So you'll see state RPSs or, or state tax credits. And those will be, those will come forward and be promoted. Not, I don't think that's going to change the flavor of the discussion on the Hill. Well, then, then thinking about this on the state level, I've been talking to businesses that are trying to figure this out. And of course, it's really difficult to say when you don't know what these plans are going to look like for years. Um, but clearly, you're going to see a dozen new, really interesting renewable energy markets open up, and a bunch of new solar markets open up. And I'm just curious if you see this as a big driver of business, Jigger, and, and if you see states starting to grapple with these issues that California, Massachusetts, New York, Arizona, and others are dealing with in terms of how to value distributed generation? And perhaps do you think that they'll implement programs with those lessons in mind that we're already dealing with? 
No, I mean, I think people are naive about the way the process works in both a good and a bad way. The way that this stuff works is the Public Service Commission, the governor's energy office, says we have to start a docket to talk about the clean power plan because we have to figure out implementation. Then they put together, you know, then they ask for a testimony and lots of people from Solar City to San Edison to SIA, but also the American Lung Association and the Black Nurses Association and others will submit testimony. And then then you start to see where the politics shake out in each of these areas. And remember, in 2008, one guy, I mean, P.J. Wilson, put forward uh, an amendment during a presidential year that got 67% of the vote in Missouri to mandate 300 megawatts of solar, which he's, by the way, looking to do again. So... Um, so what you find is, is that in this politics process, at the time at which some official body, like the Public Service Commission or the governor's office, puts out this type of docket, you actually end up having very meaningful education opportunities and, um, and policy-making opportunities in red states as well as blue states that people, I think, you know, on one side are like, you know, are just so... Um, you know, negative and pessimistic about stuff, they're like, oh, this is never going to happen. And on the other side, I think there are people who put too much weight on this stuff. But these, these like, conversations is what always starts a process that leads to a law getting passed in that state. So when you look at this in the context of what we actually need to do within the next 10 years, I agree with Michael that it's weak. But there's this whole international component that is really important. And we've got the Paris climate talks coming up. And this is a very big deal for international climate negotiations. And quite frankly, this clean power plan is exactly like what we've seen in the past. Like the Obama administration takes these disparate measures that are already in the works, either within the government or out in the market, and they package them in a way that makes it look like it's a lot bigger. And I th and it's clearly a very effective negotiating tool, as we saw with these um, targets that China set recently. Um, and it's it's not wrong. It's not like they're, they're lying about anything. It's just that for those who follow these efforts closely, we can see that much of what's being done is already in the works, or much, is, much, is what, much of what is being talked about is already in the works. But how important is this symbolically, Michael, for the international community as we go into Paris? Well... You know, I guess I don't know is the sort of honest answer. No, I mean, I'm not skeptical. I mean, everybody, you know, people who know more about international climate negotiations than I do say that it's a big deal. Um, from my perspective, that that makes it sound like essentially any carbon rule would have been a big deal um, just because it shows that we have a carbon rule, um, whether it's whether it's strong or weak. Um, you know, uh, I think what's really what made the deal in China happen, what's uh, what's going to make negotiations in Paris possible is the fact that the changes in the electric sector that we're, we've been talking about are already happening. Um, and that's driven, uh, number one, by price, <laughs> um, right? Wind and solar getting super cheap, gas also cheap. Uh, you know, coal because of regulation getting more expensive. Number two, by hammers, um, which is related to number one. And there I kind of question to what extent uh, the clean power plan is really adding to, to the hammer. And number three, by politics, um, as Jigger mentioned. And uh, the politics can be affected by, by, uh, by price and by hammers. Um, but there's also uh, an ideological component where there's still well, let's face it, a large part of the Republican Party that, you know, doesn't like the green stuff. 
um, and that's going to affect the pace of implementation as well. Um, and ultimately, our pace of implementation is going to affect how much we can ask other countries to do in Paris. Well, so what are you looking at, Catherine, now, looking forward? Like, what's most interesting to you here in D.C. when you look at either the legal challenges or the politics of this? What should we be looking at from a national political perspective? Yeah, so I'm not a legal person, so I know that's going to happen. And to me, that's a lot of noise. I'm really interested in the process and what's really going to happen on the ground. So there are a lot of great resources out there. Um, NARUC, which is the utility commissioners, the uh, NACA, the clean air agencies, and NASIO, the state energy officials, have this great website that kind of has tools on it. I know EPA is going to put out some more technical support documents that are not yet on the website, but it's, you know, about how to incorporate renewables and efficiency, how to do demand side solutions and greenhouse mitigation measures. So there's going to be a lot more coming. I'm going to be looking for that because I really want to see what is EPA going to suggest to states and see what each state's going to do. I honestly think um, no matter how strict or not strict this is, that this is going to drive the markets for clean energy solutions. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that how they're all going to shake out. Are the state implementation plans your focus now, Michael? I mean, obviously, we're going to have to wait a while. But um, what are you looking at now going forward from a journalistic perspective? One is uh, after, you know, after I found this stuff about how really the uh, the the final rule screws red states um, and it screws the dirty states. I'm really interested to see how the Mitch McConnell's and Mike Pence's of the world who have been describing this, even the draft plan that kind of gave their states a pass is Armageddon, how they're going to make the case that this is sort of Armageddon year. Um, how they're going to go nutser and berserker, um, and uh, and whether people are going to pay attention to them since they were essentially crying wolf in the past. Um, in the longer term, one thing that I think will be interesting um, off that uh, that the same new development in the plan is uh, is what this the effect will be for carbon trading. Um, a lot of certainly in, in Washington, you know, carbon, you know, cap and trade and trading has become seen as this kind of greeny, lefty, hippie, enviro kind of thing. Um, but the way the plan is structured now, um, where you know the the Kentuckys and West Virginias of the world are going to have to do a lot under the plan, and the Californias and Massachusettses of the world are going to go way beyond the plan, that's going to set up some real opportunities for trading um, for kind of the dirtier, redder states um, in ways that may not be helpful for overall emissions. So uh, so I'm already hearing from some of the people, the kind of coal fighters, who are kind of worried about, uh, you know, about, about these kind of free market trading plans that, that enviros usually think of as kind of positive things. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out. Jigger, you get the last word here. I want to loop this back around to the business community. What should companies be thinking about as we um, look at this final plan and consider how states are implementing their plans? Well, when you look at the social media feeds of all these uh, companies this last week, I mean, Sun Edison, Solar City, and others were all promoting the plan. I, look, I do think that this actually provides um, a tremendous opportunity for the lobbyists, the policy people within these companies to have a meaningful conversation about how to actually help their industries outside of the clean power plan. I also think that in these red states, as Michael referred to them, um, that 
I do think that there is an active ability for us to go to them and say, we can invest $10 billion into your state if you do these three things. And I think that that is going to be far more compelling to them than EDF's misguided you know, carbon cap and trade crap. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. Uh, we were joined by Michael Grunwald, who is a senior writer at Politico, and he also edits a website called The Agenda which was recently rolled out by Politico. And you can find his writing there and uh, the writing of some other great journalists at politico.com slash agenda. And we'll link to the stories that uh, Michael wrote on the Clean Power Plan this week. All right, it's uh, time to get a word in here about our sponsor, Renesola. Renesola has been producing monocrystalline wafers since 2005 and been manufacturing solar cells and wafers since 2008. The company is now producing and distributing fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. Think about the added value you could realize by adding Renesola's LEDs to your projects. And think about the time you could save as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. Go to renesola.us to check out all their products online or connect with a local rep and call 415 415- Eight five two seven four two one. Let's jump across the Atlantic and move from one ambitious national policy to another. We can only hope the story in America does not turn out like it did in the UK, where the Green Deal, an ambitious home weatherization program, was canceled due to poor management and mounting costs. The Green Deal has suffered from poor execution from the beginning. Um, it, it had poor participation, technical glitches, fraud complexity, extremely long paybacks. I mean, you name it. So what went wrong? And will the government replace it with something better? Jigger, I'm assuming that you weren't surprised that this program was shut down. I know I wasn't. I've been following it over the last couple of years. Um, What were some of the biggest problems that you've seen identified? So I think it's not unlike the Connecticut Green Bank that, you know, there is this mistaken notion in Um, by policymakers that if they just offer money at low interest rates that everything will solve itself. And in fact, exactly the opposite is true. Well, well, and just sorry to ruin your train of thought here, but they actually were offering really high interest rates for this program too, which was kind of a problem because it took forever to pay back the loan. It was still single digits. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, look, I think that when you think about the solar sector and where it went to, which is, you know, I think a great analogy and one that I write about, I mean, in my book in this area, you really want to start with much higher returns, like 15, 18, 20% returns. There are a lot of things. The UK is one of the most energy efficient countries in Europe. When you think about how efficient Germany is versus the UK, it's just it's mind-blowing. Um, insulation, boiler efficiencies, et cetera, all of which could be financed through this Green Deal. Um, And in fact, you know, New York State has a program that's, you know, poorly structured, I think, in this area as well. What you want to do is to give the utility on-bill payment mechanism, which is really the key to the Green Deal, um, you want to give access to that by private companies. And so whatever transaction they come up with, with the contractors, whether it's 10%, 15%, 18% return, doesn't matter. What you really want is to be able to access on-bill payment mechanisms via the utilities billing system because what you find is that the data shows that um, people pay back their 
bills on the uh, their loans on on bill payment mechanisms at a far higher rate than separate payments like leasing through solar city and so so you know that's the core idea and they left the core idea by trying to figure out how to use um, you know, in my opinion, subsidized government money, even at 6.9%, the, the cost of capital here is, you know, too low. Yeah. yeah it but, seemed but, like the, like customers did not perceive this as an attractive deal. No. And, and they were able to repay the loans on their utility bills. They, right. But that's the, that's the key piece. And I mean, they brought in the carbon war room back like three years ago to help put this together. And I remember talking to them about this and saying, all I want is and the, my entrepreneurial friends want is access to the meter. So basically the loan is attached to the meter. So if you sell your house and someone else buys the house, then the next guy who buys the house has to pay back the loan through the meter. Right. And so that's the critical innovation that we cared about. But instead they said, no, we have to put money up and it's 6.9% and we've got to get the contractors to use the money and insulation. And, and, and that doesn't work. It's it just, it's, I think that people have a hard time understanding this concept. But what you really want is you take some innovative technology that some boiler manufacturer in Bristol, UK comes up with and you say, we need to figure out how to sell that to the customer. You then use this on-bill payment mechanism. The Bristol manufacturer can kick back money to the investor. So the, the, invest, the, the homeowner might be paying, let's call it a 6.9% interest rate. But the investor only paid 80 cents on the dollar for the boiler. So net-net, the investor is making a 12% return because they didn't pay the full 100% cost of the system. Instead, the, the contractor ate 20% of the deal. That's the kind of horse trading that goes on in the solar industry all the time through private sector finance and the kind of horse trading that's not possible within these heavily government-regulated programs. So everything that could have gone wrong did, really. I mean, in the beginning, they had really poor outreach and poor marketing. You know, they had just like a few thousand people sign up. Um, the, their website was really crappy. So when they shifted over to this cashback scheme, the website crashed. People couldn't get their rebates. They had the start-stop problems with traditional rebates programs, right? So they were oversubscribed within hours of releasing them. Um so, of course, they had low participation overall, and then they had this problem with crappy contractors. One in 10 contractors through this program were blacklisted. One in 10. That is insane. Um, and many of them were doing work that, um, you know, was fraudulent. I mean, they were promising people rebates and promising people they were working through the program, and some of these contractors, like, we're, we're promising rebates that weren't even available. But one thing really struck me, and this goes back to our conversation about the one knob program, and that is just paying people rather than these prescriptive rebates, paying people for the kilowatt hour reductions. And, um, you know, you look at a guy like Nate Adams, one of the guys who came up with the idea of one knob, and he's a home performance contractor in Ohio, and he's working on these projects that he, he doesn't need any subsidies for no utility rebates, no nothing, because he's rather than saying like, OK, I'm going to think about this from an energy efficiency perspective and maybe sprinkle a little in, insulation in here and change out your windows. He's going to the homeowner and trying to solve a problem, you know, a comfort problem, a lifestyle problem. And he can go in and rather than like check off the checklist and say, OK, I've done these two or three things for you. He can really do a a, a 
a holistic estimate and put together something that is going to solve that problem and ultimately achieve savings. And when you sort of frame it like that, then you're talking about a different way of uh, thinking about payback. And, you know, some of these companies, at least in a small way thus far, able to do it without rebates themselves. So um, I think, you know, in talking about weatherization programs, like maybe we're asking the wrong question as well. And that seems to be a piece of this. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I reached out to Steve Nadell, who's the executive director of ACEEE, and he said, you know, a lot of times this is this is a matter of accuracy of an energy audit and predicting savings rather than actually calibrating the bills. So I think asking the right questions, and as you say, there are, there's a lot more than just what you're not spending on electricity, which you can you can count that. Um, it's different from solar because solar is producing electricity rather than just avoiding it. But looking at comfort and avoided cost is is huge. And so part of this is what you're counting, how do you design your program, and how do you talk to c- customers in such a way that this becomes valuable to them? Yeah, I just look, I mean, we can go on for days about weatherization <laughs> really programs. And we have talked about, you know, that Freakonomics episode and some of these, you know, um, academic studies that come out. I just think that there is this aversion to allowing investors to actually make a rate of return necessary to provide a lot of these services, right? If investors were putting up their own money and it wasn't coming from the government, you'd find that the contractor qualification programs would be way higher because now you've got someone to sue if the contractor is cheating the customer. You'd find that like a lot of these other marketing budget issues would have gotten solved because a private sector group wouldn't have come in if the marketing wasn't in place. I just think that you know, one of the things that frustrates me about the UK broadly is that, um, you know, Ashley Rudd, who's, you know, in the, in the seat there at DEC. Uh, Amber Rudd. Uh, sorry, Amber Rudd, um, who's in the seat there at, at DEC. You know, they're just not, I just find that, like, on the utility 2.0 side, the UK is amazingly thoughtful. But on the renewable energy rebate side, they're amazingly not thoughtful. Like, for instance, she's cutting rebates on solar which I don't have a problem with. I think solar can probably handle those cuts. But instead of actually working with the industry and doing a three-year phase-out of the subsidies and all that stuff, they said, no, by the way, we're not going to consult with you at all. We're just going to cut it off and create a big brouhaha, which is what they're doing now. And I just think that like, there is, a, there is a, this history in the, in the UK of providing a lot of public sector money without the proper amount of private sector participation. Um, and it just... It, it leads to suboptimal outcomes in the UK all the time in these renewable energy subsidy programs. So you said that Connecticut is doing it the wrong way. Do you think New York is doing it the right way? New York doesn't have enough data points to say that it is. But I, I mean, look, I mean, New York has been set up to do it the way that I'm suggesting and that Richard Kaufman obviously put forward. And, and can you, you just know, walk us is, through the mechanics of that? Like how, how so, the program works? Well, instead of providing capital to um, to these upgrades, like, you know, with government money, what you're doing is saying, private sector people, you have to put up the capital, and then what insurance policies do you want from the New York Green Bank to make you comfortable? Like, do you want a first loss reserve fund? Do you want us to co-invest 20% with you? Do you need us to, like, take certain risks that are not yet well understood by the private sector market onto our balance sheet? But you, what you're doing is encouraging private sector capital to come forward and take give most of the capital you're not 
providing the capital off the government's balance sheet, which is what the Connecticut Green Bank was doing. Now, the on-bill payment mechanism, which is similar to the Green Deal in New York, is is a disaster. It's $100 million. Nobody's using it. It's for HVAC contractors. And it's one of the next things that I have to work on fixing because it's um, it's not working the way it should. And so New York is no picnic. But even in Hawaii, where they've got an on-bill payment mechanism, they awarded the contract to somebody who then up and died on the street of a heart attack, poor guy. And then AFC First is now trying to fund you know, that deal, and they're having a hard time raising the money. And so uh, I do think that we need to work a little bit harder in the U.S. at figuring out this on-bill payment mechanism stuff. Wow. Now that we are going to see a lot more efficiency programs around the U.S., I am hoping and praying that state regulators utilities and those and the advocates that are pushing these programs are paying attention to these experiences. Uh, let's go to our last segment, which is focused on one of Jigger's favorite people to talk about, Bill Gates. Late last week, Gates wrote a new piece on his blog explaining how he would spend the billion dollars he recently committed to clean energy. The tone is similar to his previous pieces on energy access and climate change, focusing strongly on technology innovation and breakthroughs. There's one big change, though. A few years ago, Gates called technologies like solar cute and said they could never come close to technologies like nuclear. Of course, a lot has changed in solar and now in battery storage, which Gates also mentioned. And he's kind of lumping all these technologies together as an important way for addressing climate change and energy poverty. And and he's got this kitchen sink approach to innovation to include everything now, which I thought was a notable change. Um, you know, Jigger was very critical of Gates, who recently partnered with Bjorn Lomberg to advocate for fossil fuels as a way to combat energy poverty. And uh, I'm not sure if this sort of supplants that philosophy, but it's it's an evolution that we're witnessing here, I think. Um, is this a significant change in your opinion, Jigger? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that, um, you know, the, the thing that I took issue with with Bill Gates is that, you know, you're talking about a guy who is very wealthy and very, you know, very much followed um, by the media and other thought leaders. And, you know, he was really expounding in areas outside of his expertise um, to the detriment of poor people. I mean, basically what he was saying is that everyone who's poor that's not connected to the grid has to wait until we get there with the grid. And um, and that's, you know, the Center for Global Development has the same point of view. The World Bank had the same point of view. And I think, you know, through work from Justin Gway at the Sierra Club, who's now at um, the Packard Foundation and others, um, we've been able to get Bill Gates and others to realize that we're electrifying way more people every week through solar lanterns and solar home systems than the coal industry or nuclear industry or grid extension broadly is doing around the world. And even the World Bank has changed their point of view. I don't think the Center for Global Development has changed their point of view, but, you know, I'm hoping that they actually come around. Um, you know, if we, I think if we can get people to realize that, you know, that Andy Revkin's sort of counterfactual pieces and that, uh, you know, Brown Lomberg or, you know, folks that need to be put out to pasture, I think we'd be all better off. I don't think we need to put Andy Revkin out to pasture. I Andy Revkin constantly puts out crap like this. I think when you look at like, I mean, his latest piece around four graphs that bolster Bill Gates's case for greatly boosting clean energy research, you know, he sort of like, you know, subtly puts in the Bjorn Lomberg like school of management in all of his pieces, which is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. But, you know, he has his right to do that. So here's what I think is interesting is I think there is a complete paradox between what Bill Gates says to do and what he actually does. So in his sort of three tenets, he says, first, if government puts more R&D into something, then investors will flock. Well, just 
guess what? There's this valley of death that you're not actually talking about. Investors don't get there until you get through that. The second one is like reducing subsidies to everybody and putting all the savings back into R&D. And then the third thing is stepping up research budgets by helping poor countries. Well, the issue is that's not actually deploying anything. And yet what he does with his money is he's invested in Aquion Energy Storage, which is basically a saltwater battery. That's that's deployment. All of his elimination of malaria, immunization, that's all deployment of solutions. And yet what he talks about is R&D, which is not deployment. Totally. And when I find myself reading the, you know, the innovation advocates, like I'm nodding along. I'm saying like, yeah, of course I agree with you. Absolutely. And when I read this Bill Gates piece, like the tenants are there and I completely agree with them. But when you, but I'm, I get so sick of their, and I don't want to talk wholesale about everyone who sort of advocates this position, but let's just look at Gates specifically. When he talks about innovation, he doesn't really outline any specific policies as well that could help bridge that valley of death that you mentioned, Catherine. And like, there are very real policy measures that you could put in place, insurance backstops or competitive programs to, to procure some of these early stage technologies and utility programs, you know, these, these pilots that could be implemented. Like there are definite ways that you could help bring investors that are not comfortable with the risks of backing these pre-commercial technologies to help get them comfortable with that. And so I never really see those specifics coming from someone like Gates, who is saying something that, you know, broadly speaking, is right, but um, doesn't really stack up with his behavior, like you mentioned, Catherine, and quite frankly, doesn't have enough detail for how we achieve what he's talking about. Yeah, Bill Gates knows that... that I mean, the guy knows how to deploy. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even before he actually has a software checked um, for bugs. And <laughs> but I, look, I mean, I, look, I, um, look, I'm just glad that he's pushed himself to the side, right? Like, I don't really care. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He's a billionaire. He can invest his money however he wants. But I just don't want him destroying entrepreneurial dreams because he actually is trying to, like, like, you know, say some sort of off-the-cuff comment at some sort of Fortune Brainstorm Green conference. And so I'm just like, that's the part that I was pushing back on him on, and I think he's now agreed and apologized, which is great. And so we can move on, and we can get a whole bunch of money into clean energy deployment, and, you know, Kathy Zoy is now running that division for Sun Edison. You've got, you know, Solar City that's investors in off-grid electric, and I think a lot of this stuff is moving at lightning speed, which is fantastic. And he's basically said, I apologize. I'm moving myself to the side. I'm going to work on nuclear. And when it's ready, it's ready, which is great. Yeah. Well, hopefully we've told you some things that you didn't already know, but we will end our show by telling you something additional that you didn't know. And Catherine, you're up first. Tell us something we don't know. Sure. So, you know, we, we talk about Tesla in the energy storage context, or at least that's how I've been thinking about them recently. But their vice president of deployment of development, Dermot O'Connell, up in Michigan today, evidently was really pushing in favor of federal targets uh, at much higher rates uh, and than are currently in place, you know, 54.5 mile per gallon by 2025, and has really been kind of bullish on that. So I thought that was Really interesting that Tesla is continuing to try to push the envelope on their car 
offerings. Um, at the same time, when I went to Google to look for something, there was a little traffic light on it. And today is the 101st anniversary of the first electric traffic signal system. So it was a nice little roundup for my thinking about cars. Well, that's a good one. I did see that logo, but I didn't bother actually figuring out what it meant. <laughs> I, I really was. I, I really did just learn something I didn't know. Jager, how about you? What do you got? So, you know, I read um, a great website uh, fast, from Fast Company is Fast Coexist. And they did a piece this week on um, a neighborhood in the South Korean city of Suwon, uh, which embarked on a radical experiment. So for one month, the neighborhood basically banned cars. Um, it was called the Eco-Mobility Festival. And, you know, lo and behold, they, you know, had some exceptions for delivery of goods and services for businesses and some of that stuff. But they basically banned cars. And it was extraordinary how much economic development occurred. I mean, just, just people like, you know, cafes took up that area to add more seating. People, you know, brought their kids out. They were playing. There were lots of games. And, you know, like, and businesses made more money. The, the community got more sales tax. And, you know, people didn't have as many asthma attacks. Um, it was just, it's an amazing thing that we sort of all believe that cars are good and that widening roads are good. And, you know, New York City has done this in a couple of places in Times Square and other places where they've banned cars for, you know, certain blocks. Um, and it didn't really impact the traffic negatively, et cetera. I, I just think that this experiment's extraordinary and it's something that, you know, should be made permanent in many of our cities around the world. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Um, so I, th over the weekend, I was at a podcasting conference, a national podcasting conference that uh, I got some really interesting takeaways from. First of all, I got to meet Mark Marin, who is the um, Whoa, famous yeah. comedian and the host of the WTF podcast, just like one of the best interviewers out there. He has a particular style, so some people don't like him, but I think most people recognize that he's like one of the best interviewers um, of all time. So anyway, that was pretty cool. Um, and I can remember my first podcast back in two podcast conference back in 2006, just a couple years before a couple years after podcasts were invented and like everyone was trying to figure it all out. And we've had this big chunk of time where we haven't had any major conferences. And now this one called podcast movement has popped up and it's very clear that like the industry has become a lot more sophisticated. People have figured out the monetization models, um, a little bit better than they had in the past, You've got better audio production. Um, you have more listeners, but still we only have 27 million listeners um, of podcasts in 2014. So like the the ceiling is very, very high, but it's still so nascent too. And, and like people still, even though some of the top companies are making money off of podcasts, like they're still having a hard time reaching out to advertisers um, because of the perceived difficulty of downloading podcasts and company, you know, companies doing the sponsoring are still just interested in radio and TV. So like the industry is growing, but not at a hockey stick pace, like with other online media. And I was just really struck by how much had changed in the last 10 years, because it has basically, it's been a decade since the podcast was invented, but the industry is still going through a lot of struggles that it, that it was early on. And finally, just looping this back around to cars, since we're all talking about automobiles here, everyone, all the top people at the, the production companies, you know, in, at NPR, at the, the podcasting networks, everyone is waiting on in-car apps for podcasts. Um, and, it's, and, you know, automakers and tech companies are rolling out a bunch of models this year. We've got 
Apple, of course, with its CarPlay and um, you know, Stitcher Radio and Pandora are getting deeper into cars, Spotify. And like when that really happens, when all the cars coming off assembly lines have web-based platforms to help to make podcasts as simple to use as radio, it is game over. And I'm super excited about that. So hopefully Apple puts, um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm excited about Apple's, Apple's CarPlay is about the prospects of it developing an electric car. <laughs> I was just going to say, how many people go to a podcasting conference? A thousand. Whoa, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Trekkies, like Trekkies. That's right. <laughs> or those like YouTube channel folks. I mean, there's so many of these YouTube channels where they have like 5 million followers. Yeah. But, you know, but the real question is, when is Howard Stern going to join a podcasting, uh, you know, network for $100 million? <laughs> these networks do not have $100 million. I can tell you that. <laughs> not That's yet. a long way off. Yeah. But if they had Howard Stern... Yeah, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> a big thanks to our sponsor, Renasola. You can find Renasola's LEDs, solar panels, batteries, inverters, and more at its website, renasola.us. We are produced by me and supported by Green Tech Media. To get some links to stories we discussed on the podcast, take a look at the show notes on greentechmedia.com slash podcast. To sign up for our newsletter and read all the content from our team of writers, place to go is greentechmedia.com i am off next week i'm on vacation um so we are off as a group but we will catch you soon um catherine enjoy the break yourself and we will talk to you on the 20th of august great can't wait do you want to tell people who our special guest will be oh senator angus king independent from maine who actually knows a heck of a lot about energy he does he has a long background in energy and he listens to this show so he knows what he's getting into. Jigger, uh, you're off to Maine next week. Enjoy your trip. And congratulations again on the new addition to your family. Thanks. Look forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>